Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, the very last in our series on nuclear fusion. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a type of cognitive bias which causes people to overestimate how intelligent they are. It's found in all walks of life and in many different avenues when acquiring new knowledge about the world or new skills. Simply put, it arises from this fact. When you don't know things, you don't know how much you don't know. If you're brand new to a field and you learn a few facts about it, you might be tempted to assume that you're suddenly an expert compared to the relative ignorance of those around you, or yourself, of a few moments ago. And this is particularly true if the first facts you're exposed to lead you to a strong opinion one way or the other. It's only through learning a little more that we come to realise just how little we know. This process has been repeated throughout my life, and probably throughout yours too. The more I discover about particular subjects, the more the vast contours of my ignorance reveal themselves. And this is generally because things are always far more complex than we'd like to give them credit for, or would like to believe that they are. And this is very fitting for nuclear fusion, because it mirrors the story of humanity's attempts to harness fusion on Earth, for our own purposes, remarkably well. Every time we think we're approaching some level of understanding of how to control fusion, how to force those pesky nuclei together and confine them amidst turbulence and large-scale instabilities, we find new ways that nature can frustrate our efforts. So how can I summarise my thoughts about nuclear fusion after all this research and after we've been on this journey together? It's difficult because the field is one of contradictions that opens itself up to so many different perspectives. It began with a bomb, the race to construct a device that would be an order of magnitude more powerful than the bombs that had already raised Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The development of thermonuclear bombs would eventually result in devices large enough to obliterate everything within a 50 kilometre radius. The first time the human race liberated energy from nuclear fusion in any meaningful way, the blast was big enough for Edward Teller to see it on a seismometer, built to measure earthquakes, halfway around the world. It was the first time that humanity had seized the power to kill millions, if not billions, in an instant. Here, then, is physics in action. Here's what we mean when we say that the strong nuclear force is strong, and that gravity is the weakest of the fundamental forces. Here are the consequences of E equals MC squared. When Tsar Bomba, the largest ever fusion bomb, exploded, the fusion of its deuterium and tritium atoms resulted in products that were just a couple of kilograms lighter than before, but that's enough to explode with the force of a million tonnes of TNT, and blow part of the atmosphere up into space. This was all the demonstration you needed that nuclear weapons, on a small scale, could vastly outstrip anything humans had been capable of before. And, as if in response to the horrors of these bombs, a persistent idealism has followed nuclear fusion ever since. In a lot of ways, Ronald Richter, the vaguely crackpot scientist who managed to persuade an Argentine dictator he could liberate energy from nuclear fusion, was in the vanguard of this idealism, even if he wasn't the best scientist to be involved in nuclear fusion. We don't know if he was a fraudster, or if he genuinely believed that he was on the verge of some marvellous breakthrough. Most fraudsters at least attempt to take the money and run, which Richter did not do. When his scheme eventually collapsed, it might have seemed like that dream of limitless energy supplied to people in milk bottles had vanished, leaving nothing but a red-faced Juan Perón and a massive experimental facility hidden away on a secret island. But this wasn't the case, because Richter's idea caught on. In the US and in the Soviet Union, and doubtless in many other places across the world, the headlines and hype surrounding nuclear fusion offering a source of clean, limitless energy for the future, and catapulting economies into something like the 21st or 22nd century, had their effect. There were scientists who already wanted to study this. Governments began to fund real fusion programs. And here was where the devices came from. Those that we've been talking about for so many weeks. The tokamak, the stellarator, the pinch machine. And as we've seen, over the course of the story, how many times people felt they'd come close, only to realise that they hadn't. There was the Harwell Zeta machine, which was heralded as a sign that energy from fusion was a few decades away, in the 1950s. Turns out that this particular pinch device wasn't even producing most of its neutrons from fusion, although after the embarrassment had died down, other pinch devices quickly would. 
There was the tokamak revolution of the 1960s, a new device that offered such improved performance that scientists crossed the Iron Curtain to examine it and document it. And while many decades of work on tokamaks has improved them to the cusp of reaching break-even, the answer wasn't as close as it may have appeared to the excited scientists in the West, building dozens of devices of different shapes and sizes. There has been real progress. These devices are getting better, they are confining plasma for longer, they're coming closer to producing net power. But it still seems like, in these timescales, we're as far away as we ever have been. There was the burst of excitement surrounding laser inertial confinement fusion when a brand new technology, capable of operating on the scales and with the temporal and spatial coherence you need to hope to control plasma finally, was developed in the form of a laser. And this hype perhaps culminated in NIF, possibly the most expensive attempt at energy from fusion ever constructed. If, of course, you actually believe that this is what it's really for, and not a return to the dark old days where nuclear fusion was something you only needed to understand if you were building a bomb. And yet NIF, and all the laser fusion experiments before it, found the plasma literally squeezing out from the gaps in their laser beams, as if the experimentalists were trying to grab and crush plasma between splayed fingers, letting tendrils of the stuff burst out. There have been private investors, now and in the past, who have thought that they could find the secret ingredient, the magic formula, the spark of genius that could make commercial fusion a reality. We talked about the modern-day startups aiming to do this in the last couple episodes. It may seem like a very modern phenomenon, with venture capitalists prowling around the future of the energy transition, hype surrounding machine learning and advanced manufacturing, the desire to disrupt everything, making the impossible possible, changing the world through startups, but we know that this has been going on for a long, 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 long time. We talked about the incident where the founder of a somewhat disreputable pornography magazine caught the same bug, the same fusion glint in his eye that seems to motivate so many in the field, from reading an interview in one of his lesser-known publications. Some of those modern-day startups, particularly the ones that aim to essentially improve or scale down the tried-and-tested tokamak concept, rather than gambling on something totally new that can't benefit from the decades of experience and refinement that tokamaks can, which of course took an awful lot of intellectual and capital expenditure, might just have a better chance of delivering net gains from fusion over the next few decades than ITER, the behemoth, the collaboration that dates back to the days of Reagan and Gorbachev and still isn't fully built. On the other hand, there are plenty of people out there who can tell you just how difficult fusion is. It might well be that ITER are the ones to finally achieve that symbolic milestone of liberating more energy from fusing nuclei than it required to hold them in place and heat them to temperatures in excess of those at the heart of the sun. But can that milestone ever be anything more than symbolic? Here comes the next wave of the fusion idealism. It's not just anticipating that you will be able to solve, or at least contribute to solving, a fiendishly difficult problem that has confounded the efforts of brilliant scientists and engineers for generations. It's also, in some ways, perhaps the belief that fusion won't be too late. Fusion is likely to be too late to make any impact on climate change. If you follow ITER's timescale, the first power plant putting electricity on the grid will exist by 2050. Since they're currently taking a decade to build, and since new technologies based on hardware inevitably take a while to adopt, on this timescale, fusion can't form any part of our energy mix until the end of the century. If we haven't decarbonised by then, it's already too late as far as climate change is concerned. And chances are, if we have succeeded in that great mission, then a vast majority of the world's energy will be supplied by renewables, like solar and wind, rather than necessarily nuclear fusion. The brutal numbers for fusion as a practical energy source come from the world of economics and finance. Here, the situation is even worse than the physics, which we're starting to get a handle on. Nuclear fission is dying a slow and painful death nearly everywhere, propped up mostly by government support, even though it's a technology that's been mature and in use for decades. The new nuclear power plant in the UK, when it's finally completed, years late, billions of pounds over budget, will provide some of the most expensive electricity that the country has to offer. 
it will be massively more expensive than natural gas. And the latest offshore wind auctions for the UK actually imply that it will soon be cheaper to shut down existing natural gas plants and build new offshore wind than it will be to simply keep running those natural gas plants. Now, to be fair, this particular nuclear power plant, Hinkley Point, is a particularly miserable example. The project is not going remarkably well at present and has run into some issues that may be specific to the reactor design. But nuclear fission is actually getting more expensive to build over time, while renewables are declining in price. It's difficult to see how this is likely to change without massive investment in research and development that's just not currently going on. Solar power continues a stunning exponential decline in price. Solar and wind are the cheapest energy sources across most of the world, and the price is still declining. Nuclear, fusion or fission can argue that it provides a constant baseload, power when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine. This would be true for fusion if anyone knew whether continuous operation without disruptions was possible in a tokamak. But you still have to be pessimistic about how much energy storage will cost, or how much redundant capacity would need to be built to see fusion getting a look in. And even then, the issues that it would face would be the same problems that the current fission industry is facing now. Purely speaking, if you're a private investor, and you have a choice of designing some cheap power plants that provide non-constant energy, or some expensive power plants that provide a baseload, you don't care as long as you know that you can sell the electricity. And consequently, the fact that you're providing baseload is not really of interest to you as an investor. You can leave someone else to handle building the expensive power plants that actually keep the grid running. Maybe the government. And so we're back where we started. There's no real reason to think that fusion will be substantially cheaper than fission. Fusion reactors are vastly more complicated to build than fission reactors. That means delays to construction, it means more upfront investment with no expectation of return, which the private and public sectors will bulk at alike when there are cheaper alternatives available. The harsh, brutal reality is that fusion looked like it would struggle to compete some decades ago, and now it's extremely difficult to see how it can ever catch up to technologies that are intrinsically vastly less complicated and have many, many years head start. It will probably require some very, very major development in plasma physics or fusion confinement from one of these startups that can really make a much, much smaller and less complex device for fusion to be worthwhile economically as a major source of power. And we don't really know whether anything like that is coming. In some ways, it seems even obvious. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the investors from Dragon's Den and Shark Tank. Remember that what we're really trying to do here is not actually, when we generate power, is not actually fuse plasma together. We're simply trying to spin a turbine. You rotate a turbine, you spin a magnet within a coil of wire, and that induces electrical power that way. I mean, that's all you're trying to do. Spin the turbine. One person comes up to you and says that they will build a vast reactor that will heat rare nuclei to temperatures vastly hotter than the core of the sun by bombarding them with radio waves and special neutral ion beams that they'll contain them with magnetic fields using magnets stronger or more complex than have ever been built, which are constantly bathed in liquid nitrogen to keep them operating, managing the occasional random disruption that might destroy the device, capture the thermal energy from the particles that they release when they fuse, particles, by the way, that are strong enough to utterly obliterate any known material, at temperatures hot enough to melt tungsten, that turn everything that they touch into radioactive waste, that these particles will also generate more fuel for the reactor by hitting the walls, because its fuel is hard to come by in the real world, and the heat will evaporate water into steam to spin the turbine. And then they tell you that they've been trying to get it working for the last 70 years, but they're nearly there. And when they get it working, it will cost a few billion dollars up front, and it will take a decade or so to build. Another person comes up to you and says, you know that turbine you want to spin around? My idea is basically a windmill, but bigger. 
there are thousands of them working just fine across the world, we can switch it on and start making money in a few months. I mean, who are you investing in? Yet somehow Fusion manages to cling onto this dreamy futuristic gloss, even as cynics and critics point out that its techno-futurist gloss for energy from nuclear fusion is old enough to start drawing a pension. Maybe it's just that the whole project is so damned audacious that the science and physics behind it are so undeniably awesome. It's the glory of it, to capture the sun in a bottle, the phenomenon that lights up the universe and prolongs the existence of all matter of any kind of organised form, to go full Icarus, to grab a chunk of that, bring it down to a lab in Berkeley, or the south of France, or Oxfordshire, and, with vast magnets or colossal lasers, with ingenuity and human might, liberate that energy, as if creating a new form of fire. It's really, 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 really damn cool. To have such an amazing dream ruined by something as soul-crushingly dull as economics is depressing beyond belief. In fact, even as I was writing this episode, I had to revise it, because we had announced in the UK that there will be an additional round of funding to help the folks at Cullum in Oxfordshire with fusion energy efforts. This was initially announced as money to create the world's first fusion reactor, providing energy to the grid by 2040. It may be starting to sound familiar. The specific details here involve 220 million over four years to create a conceptual design, so not an actual reactor yet, of a spherical tokamak, continuing some of the work with the mass device that has occurred over the last few years. Remember, spherical tokamaks have a smaller aspect ratio, i.e. a smaller hole in the middle, and this geometry gives their plasma some extra stability, but it comes at its own cost, including the fact that it's more difficult to build the magnetic coils, etc. in the centre of the device. I think it's good that the government is investing money in fusion in this way. Ultimately, compared to the many millions that are spent on less worthy projects, it often seems like a beneficial idea to research any kind of scientific area, particularly when it comes to energy production. Even if the primary aims are not successful, we often find things out in the process that are useful, and one can make the same argument for this project as many startups make, that a few million towards an area that's currently under-investigated might end up doing more to make fusion feasible than the billions spent on ITER. But it did disturb me, and several fusion scientists, including Thomas Nicholas, a PhD student in fusion energy and plasma physics at York, who wrote a great article on the conversation about this, that this was mentioned in the same line of argument as climate change. Ultimately, for the reasons we've discussed, and as Thomas points out, even if a reactor design can deliver energy to the grid by 2040, and this funding won't be enough to do that, then it's likely to be too late to make a major impact on climate change. After all, to achieve the Paris goals, we're already aiming to cut our emissions here in the UK to zero by 2050, and arguably the world must follow. For others, true believers, the hope is that a near-term breakthrough from an unexpected source will arise, or that ITER will pave the way to understanding plasmas and tokamaks sufficiently well to produce one at a reasonable cost. One of the startups, or some secretive lab in China or in the Navy or in Lockheed Martin, will hit upon that rare thing, a plasma behaviour that is actually helpful for people who want to achieve fusion. We have seen this before with the example of H-mode confinement, and there's maybe just enough we don't understand about plasmas or magnetohydrodynamics or turbulence that there may exist some magical combination of parameters and apparatus, twists and turns in your stellarator, some spark of ingenuity that suddenly makes the whole thing much easier and much more economical. Some people adopt the attitude that fusion's role is further in the future. Developing it now is almost the equivalent of something like Charles Babbage's Difference Engine, a vast and complicated mechanical device that does something fairly simple. To us now, it seems like a waste of time, but in the grand scheme of things, it's difficult to know where it could lead, from the position we're in, whether one is building balloons to try to get to the moon or not. 
Certainly it's true, if you catch them at a weak moment, that many of the plasma physicists working on it are fascinated by the intellectual problem, the beautiful and complex ways that the laws of nature can defy our attempts to tame them, the dense theoretical and computational approaches to understanding the behaviour of plasmas. And maybe they view the benefits that their work might have towards establishing nuclear fusion as a commercial power source as a side benefit. In that case, it's much like the Large Hadron Collider, and I don't think many people would say that that was necessarily a waste of money or time. And in this, as a physicist, I agree, of course the problem would be worth solving on its own. And the merits of fusion, if someday it could overcome what appear to be these fundamental limits on how easy it is to attain, they have more application for a far future spacefaring society than our current selves, stranded on the third rock from the sun, with no prospect of leaving it anytime soon. I don't want to be harsh to the fusion scientists, because they're much smarter than I am. Of this, I have no doubt at all. The physics is beautiful. Of this, there is also no doubt. We have seen strange, sudden, discontinuous ways that plasmas can behave under different regimes. How they can organise themselves in their own motion through self-interaction, or else fling themselves apart in a sudden disruption. We have seen amazing theoretical developments in magnetohydrodynamics and turbulence, the latter of which remains one of the most compelling and frustrating unsolved problems in physics. And our understanding of how plasmas behave gives us insight into the behaviours of stars and supernovae, and the interstellar medium, the sparse, faraway plasma that actually fills up most of the visible universe. There are some excellent results. Before we even get into how amazing some of this experimental apparatus that has been built is, the ingenuity of these researchers that have created it, the co-benefits that go along with developing these new technologies for any purpose. But amidst all the stories I've read and everything I've learned of fusion, I sense that cathedral mentality. People are convinced that they are laying the foundation stones for something greater. Something that they might never see realised, but something that, more often than not, looks like utopia. The more difficult the challenge, the more years and dollars that have to be ploughed into it, the greater the utopia must become. Maybe for some, this utopia is the sepia-toned 1950s dream of a world with limitless nuclear energy, freed from conflict and strife, using the majesty of atomic physics to liberate people from drudgery and provide them with their heart's desires. Maybe for some, the cathedral that's being built is a vast experimental apparatus, the world's greatest toy for relentlessly curious and energetic minds, with endless parameters to tune and bits of apparatus to optimise, inventions and methods to try. Maybe for some, the cathedral is something that matters more than who's going to pay the bill, contributing to the great intellectual edifice that is modern science. The vast, complex, limitless array of things we don't know, and things we do know, and things we might know. Understanding the behaviour of plasmas, this strange phase of matter that lights up the universe. Perhaps this is what much of science is, of course. Venturing out to try and map some corner of the unknown. Fumbling around in the dark. More in hope than expectation. That El Dorado is around the corner. I don't know. You'd have to ask the architects. You'd have to ask the bricklayers. You'd have to ask who they brought in to paint the mural on the ceiling. You'd have to ask the person who dreamed up the design on the stained glass window, where it came from, why it matters, and why they get up in the morning to build it. I'm not sure I can tell you why all of the cathedral builders are willing to spend their lives building the cathedral, because you'd have to ask them. But I hope that you've enjoyed watching them with me. With this epic series finally at an end, I think it's worth making a few announcements. First off, I want to thank my sources, Charles Safer's Son in a Bottle, all the guys at the subreddit for Fusion with a special mention for Maui Markovitz, Joan Lisa Bromberg's excellent history of the early decades of Fusion, Frank Close's Too Hot to Handle for helping us out with the coverage of Cold Fusion, 
and of course Justin Ball and Jason Parisi for writing The Future of Fusion Energy, an excellent and well-written book about the history and prospects for fusion which introduces some high-level science in a deeply understandable way, and I'd like to thank them again for being interviewed on the show. Now it will not come as a shock to listeners to notice that episode releases have been getting slightly more sporadic. This is because life is catching up with me, my many other responsibilities are only getting more time-consuming. I had a big backlog of fusion episodes to release when I was on a roll writing them last summer, but those are of course used up now. The podcast won't finish, I want to keep doing this for as long as I possibly can, even if it gets regular, but I think maybe expecting an episode once a fortnight rather than once a week for the foreseeable future is probably more realistic. There are also likely to be more episodes based on stories and articles that I've written elsewhere, so this may be frustrating for some of you, but I hope that you all understand. I love podcasts, listening to them and creating them, but it's a demanding process. Be kind to your favourite creators, particularly those who can't afford to do this full-time. And of course, I would like to thank everyone who has written to me over the course of this series, and before, who's said how much they've enjoyed it. Your, your comments really mean an awful lot, especially when I hear from fusion scientists or people who work on plasma physics that they're recommending these shows to their colleagues. You know, I'm, I'm, This isn't my field, I'm just trying to... Uh, represent the facts as well as I can. I know that I've made some mistakes, and at some point I think there would be a good uh, episode to be made in errata for things that have gone before. Um, But it does mean an awful lot to me when people say that they've enjoyed this show, that they've enjoyed what I do, and, well, it makes me want to carry on, and so I'm going to carry on for as long as I possibly can. So, on to the final spiel then. This is Physical Attraction. The show can be found at www.physicspodcast.com, where you'll find plenty of ways to support the show. You can contact us, you can subscribe to the PayPal, you can go to the Patreon, where there's a few bonus episodes available to anyone who's willing to pony up a few bucks in order to get hold of them. But of course, the best thing you can do for the show is always to tell as many people as you can to listen to it. People who might be interested, recommend my favourite episode, all that sort of thing. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, new topics you'd like the show to move on to now that Fusion is finished, then please let me know. You can do so via the contact form on the website. Uh, you can email physicspodcast at outlook.com, but probably the, the website contact form or Twitter is what I check the most. That's probably the best way to get in touch with me. Note that our theme music is by Melody Sheep, and you can find their stuff and support their work over on Patreon and Bandcamp. And I recommend that you do, because Melody Sheep are amazing, and they've done some excellent scientific music, more of which will be featured in upcoming shows. Until next time, then... Take care. Say, do you like mystery stories? Well, we have one for you. The concept? Relativity. That strange, fantastic relationship between time, distance, and math. Before we're finished, I think you'll agree that truth is stranger than the strangest fiction. Why do the stars shine? Why does the galaxy light up? A equals mc squared. That is the engine that lights up the stars. Energy turns into mass. A equals mc squared. That is the secret of the stars. That is the secret of the stars. Now listen carefully. The faster you move, the heavier you get. The energy of motion turns into M, your mass. Energy of motion. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Speed of light squared. An awful lot of energy. 
for a tiny amount of mass. Light travels at the same speed, no matter how you look at it. No matter how I move relative to you, light travels at the same speed. No matter who is doing the measurement, and no matter what direction you are moving, the speed of light is the same, the speed of light is the same, no matter what direction or, or how fast. As you travel faster, you travel faster. time slows down. Everything slows down. Everything slows down. Time slows down when your time passes at a different rate. Clocks run slow. It's a monumental shift in how we see the world. The beauty, the majesty, the power of the universe into a single equation. E equals mc squared. That is the engine that lights up the stars. Energy turns into mass. E equals mc squared. That is the secret of the stars. It's a beautiful piece of science. It's a beautifully elegant theory. It's a beautiful piece of science. It's a beautiful piece of... A planet like the Earth is kept in orbit because it follows curves in the spatial fabric caused by the sun's presence. Space and time are bent by stars and planets. As things move through this curved space, they bend. bend. Now, all of this is illustration of the fact that time and space are linked together. As you're moving through bent and curved space and time, you feel like you feel a force. You feel like you feel a force. As you're moving through bent and curved space and time, you feel like you feel a force. That force is gravity. The beauty, the majesty, the power of the universe into a single equation. E equals mc squared. That lights up the stars. Energy turns into mass. E equals mc squared. That is the secret of the stars. That is the secret of the stars. That is the secret of the stars. That is the secret of the stars.